You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Amen. Thank you, Andrew. Good to see you, church family. Hope you're doing well. So you grab a seat there. I want to welcome you. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here. And uh, we do, Damaris, I think we do need to scoot in if we can. There's just free up any outside edges uh, for folks that are coming in. We're pretty tight at the nine. Expect to be a little so here. 11, as you're doing that, if you got a Bible, I'd love for you to turn to a couple places with me. Ephesians chapter 5 and Galatians chapter 5. They're in your New Testament. We'll get there in a bit. We are continuing. We're week four in what we called our DNA series, looking at kind of the nature of who we are uh, and what we're about as Northway Church. And so we've looked so far at our, the mission of Northway. We looked at the vision uh, of Northway Church. And then last week we began really... 12 weeks of looking at the undergirding values that uphold the mission and vision of Northway Church. We began with our foundational value of Scripture last week and the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture in all areas of our life. This week, we're going to look at the value of being Spirit-led, being led by the Spirit of God at Northway Church. And simply put, we, we say we depend upon the Holy Spirit to lead us. This is Uh, one of our values. Now, I got to acknowledge right up front that whenever we talk about the issue or the topic of the Holy Spirit, instantly the room can get a little polarizing. In fact, already when I mentioned the phrase spirit-led, some of you already got your tambourines and your flags cocked and loaded. And you're like, yes, I've been waiting for this day. We're going ghosty today and everybody's excited. And then there's others of you in the same room that are like, what did he, did he just say spirit-led? Oh my goodness, no. And there's this fear that comes over you, like, where is he about to go? Are we about, to, is it about to be Baptocostal up in this place? Is that what's gonna happen? Like, I don't wanna be a part of it. And so there's, there's this polarization that happens and everything in between when it comes to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And part of the reason for that tension is because there's just a polarization in our church culture, especially in the West over this issue that has come sadly, from two different, two major overreactions, unbiblical overreactions to the the person and work of the Spirit. And one of that is abuse that has taken place in certain areas of the Spirit. Another is that of neglect when it comes to the Holy Spirit. You think about that. I mean, abuse, and many of us have seen or been a part of instances or churches where the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is been abused, that people have been hurt and wounded. And for most folks that are on extreme camps, that are in unbiblically untethered camps, instead of rooting their understanding of the, the person and work of the Spirit in the Scriptures and what God has revealed to us about who the Spirit is and what He does, instead have traded that um, for an emotional experience that they've simply inherited from cable TV that they were indoctrinated um, with some secret camp or some secret school or some secret upper room and uh, in which they were told that in order to legitimize your Christian faith, you must exhibit or manifest the Spirit in some external sensational way, usually the speaking of tongues and or whatever it may be that would say this is universal for all Christians and you must exhibit this or else you are junior varsity. You haven't quite made it up to the varsity ranks and they 
pit these two against each other and really end up creating a culture where um, the gifts of the Spirit become the prime product of the church rather than the byproduct of what a healthy church is committed to. And really what you see, in, and I'm talking about camps where there's abuse, what you end up seeing, and I, I don't know about you, but I encountered some of these even in high school when the Lord first saved me and I went to certain places, certain camps where I was told that, man, to truly be a godly spirit-led Christian, man, you needed to be slain in the spirit. You needed to be holy laughter rolling around the floor, holy barking, like barking in the spirit, these things that are nowhere in the scripture and actually cut the legs of what we're gonna see the scripture calls us to understand about the spirit. And what that really is on some of those extreme margins is just old school Gnosticism repackaged. It's this idea that there is some higher spiritual knowledge about God that I want to have that nobody else seems to have. There is this higher level of experience with God that nobody else seems to have and I want to have. And remember, old school Gnosticism in Greek culture, it was the idea that matter is evil and spirit is good. And today it's more of like ordinary is evil and extraordinary is, is, is awesome. And, and so there's this this ascending to this higher knowledge and higher experience and isn't ultimately tethered in what God has already revealed about himself in the spirit. And sadly, those abuses on that side, that margin, have led to hurting folks to such a degree that it it has caused many churches and many Christians to swing to the far other end of that where there's just absolute neglect of the Holy Spirit. Simply reducing the spirit to what their understanding is of an emotional temperament or a frenetic state of being and going, well, that's just not who I am. And if that's what the spirit is, and I don't want that to happen to me. And so therefore I'm going to switch teams and I'm going to worship instead God, the father, God, the spirit and God, the Holy Bible. And I'm going to kind of reduce the teaching of the spirit, let alone the practice and dependence of the spirit and what the scriptures tell us. And as a result of that, we don't want to invite the Holy Spirit to any of our gatherings because we don't want the crazy uncle showing up and creating a disturbance. So we'll just mute him altogether. And that too is equally as damning to the church and the health of the church. You need to know here at Northway Church, we don't want misunderstanding to drive our view of the Spirit, and we don't want fear and neglect to drive our understanding of the Spirit, but rather have convictional courage from the Scriptures that shape our belief, our dependence, and our practice of the Holy Spirit. And the desire here this morning really is I want to just walk through what it means as a church to be led by the Spirit according to the Scriptures. And now we're going to get to Ephesians 5 and Galatians 5, but I need to do some work first. And I'm just going to tell you right now, you might want to have a notepad of some kind out. If not, steal a pen and write on your arm. Whatever you need to do, we got some work to do. Because here's the deal. I don't want to, to try to put a roof and walls on a house that has no foundation. And in the area of the Holy Spirit, there is just so much biblical illiteracy concerning what the scriptures have to say. And I want to lay that foundation for us. And so I'm going to do as quick as I can a walk view of what is known as the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, what we would call pneumatology. Pneuma is the word for spirit in the scripture. And a study of the Holy Spirit just give you some bullet points here that we can understand about the person work of the Spirit and then leads us to what it means to be led by the Spirit. But the first thing we, I want to address right up front is who is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? And quite frankly, in order, under, 
In order to understand the Holy Spirit, you have to understand God. To understand God, you got to understand the concept of Trinity. Trinity is the idea that we believe in one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Stated differently, we would say God is one in essence, three in person. Now, um, there has been so many attempts over the years to try to create visuals that help us understand this three in one, one in three, what does this mean? And most of them will lead you to heresy. So I'm just going to ask you to guard against that. We'll talk about that in a second. There is one image that I think is helpful. It was created around the 13th century. It's this image right here that kind of helps us understand what we're talking about in the one and three, three and one. That first of all, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. The Spirit is not the force ghost of the Father. Uh, he is a person, three persons that make up one God. And, and, and all three persons exist at the same time. It's not, this is why if you've ever used the imagery, and so many of us have, I'm guilty, to try to define the Holy Spirit, it's like, oh, well, it's kind of like water, liquid that turns to gas, and that can also be frozen as ice. Well, that sounds reasonable. The problem is, is that is a heresy that was condemned in the third century, 18 centuries ago, called modalism. It's the idea of believing that God can only be in one, one person or one form at one time. But the truth is the scriptures show us that all three, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, exist at the same time. There are several places in scripture where we call triadic passages where all three are there. None greater maybe than Jesus' baptism, where Jesus is in the water, the Father is speaking, and the Holy Spirit is descending as a dove. And so you have all three present at one time. And so each, each is fully God and fully distinct, uh, and notice they are fully God and that it's not one third God. It's not like the father's one third of the Trinity. They are fully God and yet fully distinct. It's showing the unity in diversity. One God. It's the reason why in Matthew 28, 19, Jesus doesn't say, therefore, go, go into all nations, baptizing them in the names, plural, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He says, go baptize them in the name, singular the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. That's hard to get our minds around. Let's be honest. How can one be in three and three be in one? At the very least, I mean, it'll, you think about it too long, your head will explode. At very least, it shows us that God is altogether different than us. And even though he can be intimately known, he can't necessarily be fully comprehended, at least not this side of heaven, not in these minds and these bodies and our finiteness. But what we understand in the Holy Spirit is, each member of the Trinity has a unique role. The Father is often depicted as electing and foreknowing and predestining and choosing this sovereign grace of the Father. Uh, the Son as is often pictured as one who enables the Father's blueprints, his plans by coming and suffering for us and substituting himself on the cross so that we might be redeemed through his death and his resurrection. Triumph over sin, Satan, and death, the Son is. But the question is, what does the Spirit do? What is the role of the Spirit? That's where I want to go next. And lest we be here until next week, let me just limit it to two major categories, and we'll break these down a little bit, of what the Spirit does. The Spirit's work in saving you, and the Spirit's work in sanctifying you. Sanctification is a, just a big seminary word that means to set apart, to, to make glorious, to, to grow you, to transform you. What is the Spirit's job in saving you and then and then actually transforming your life. 
Um, when it comes to salvation, it's important to know that from the very beginning in Genesis 1 and 2, God, when he created human beings, he created human beings to enjoy his presence for all eternity, to enjoy the God that created us, to enjoy him perfectly for all eternity. But what happened in Genesis 3 is that man rebelled against that God. And man walked away, rejected the knowledge of God that was made evident to him, that was with him, and exchanged, as we saw a couple weeks ago, instead exchanged the truth of God for a lie, choosing to worship the creation over the creator, to think that they're smarter than God. And in rejecting God, sin entered into the world, and now the holiness of God can no longer dwell with the sinfulness of humanity. And so man was removed from the garden, removed from the presence of God. And what you have from Genesis 3 on through the rest of the Old Testament is a God who so loves his people that he's not willing to give up on them, but is now in unveiling his plan of how he is going to rescue and redeem a people who have wandered from him. And that's the rest of the Old Testament is unveiling that like, like layers of an onion just being peeled back to see this plan of God. And that's when we get to the New Testament, you see the fullness of that plan being enacted. When in John 1.14 tells us that Jesus came, second member of the Trinity, and made his dwelling among us. Emmanuel, God with us. Once again, his presence with us. But it wasn't the end. Jesus' coming was actually a means to a greater end. His purpose for making his dwelling among us was ultimately to go to the cross to endure the penalty that sin demanded, which was death, and substitute himself for us. He took our place on that cross, died, absorbed the just wrath of God for us, and then in exchange gave us his righteousness, which we couldn't earn or deserve. And so this is what Christ came for, knowing ultimately he was going to leave again. And that's why in John 16, 7, Jesus said it was better that he now go away so that the Holy Spirit can come. And I don't know how many of y'all have ever thought to yourself, no, don't go away. It's good that you're with us here, Jesus. It would be great if Jesus were here teaching the sermon right now rather than me in the flesh. It'd be good if he's leading our Bible studies together. It's good if we could just go to him in the flesh and ask questions like, no, you don't need to go away. But no, Jesus said, no, no, I, I came to accomplish my purpose on the cross so that I can go away because something better is coming the Holy Spirit. Because understand, the end goal of God's rescue plan wasn't just so that God would come and dwell among us, but rather as a new creation now, God could come and dwell within us. There's a deeper intimacy now. The goal of the gospel wasn't just to give you forgiveness. It was to forgive you so that we could be a holy people. So that once again, the presence of God could dwell with his people. And now that that presence is internal within us through the spirit, we can experience an even better intimacy than Adam had in the garden, than, than the priests had in the temple, or even Peter had in the upper room having his feet washed by Jesus himself. Because now we have God within who has given us his spirit for an intimate relationship with himself at least this side of heaven, the most intimate we can get. Now, what is the Spirit's actual role in this salvation process? I'm gonna give you six quick things. Just write these down. Six quick things that the Holy Spirit does. His job 
in saving you. The first thing that we see that he does in scripture is he convicts and he calls. The conviction and the calling of the spirit. John 16, eight speaks to this idea that before you were a Christian, the Holy Spirit came to work on your heart to convict you of your sin, to convict you concerning the righteousness that you don't have, the judgment of God against your sin, that you might have the eyes of your heart opened, that you might be able to now do what a, what a human cannot do on their own, that you would do something that only the Spirit can do for you, and that is convict you to the point of repentance and belief that you will see your sin for what it is, you'll see the holiness of God for what it is, and that you'll see that Jesus is the mediator who came to reconcile you, that you would then transfer your trust to Jesus. That is the Holy Spirit's job. That is a gift that apart from him, we can't do in our own flesh. He must come and call and convict us. Second, he baptizes. We see this in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that after you have come to put your faith in Jesus, you are then placed into the life of Jesus. That's what baptism means, to immerse, to place in. Yes, we do physical baptisms in accordance with Jesus's command, but they are simply displaying what the spiritual concept of baptism really is. It is identifying one's life with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And this is spiritually speaking, an internal work that the Spirit does at conversion when he places us into the life of Christ. And in fact, what the Spirit is doing is he is applying what the cross has provided, which is your forgiveness and your righteousness in Jesus. Thirdly, the Spirit then regenerates. Regenerates Ezekiel chapter 36 and promising a new covenant that would one day come for God's people. Not like the old covenant in which the law is written on external tablets of, of stone and you look at those and go, okay, I think I got to try to do those, but you know you can't. There's a new day coming when the law of God will actually be written on your heart where it won't be a have to, it'll become a want to. And this is the work of the spirit who would come, the spirit then giving you new life not just a second chance at life, but a brand new life. What it means to be born again, to, to have a brand new heart that worships differently, a brand new mind that thinks about God differently, a, a brand new will that yields differently. This is why so many believers will have a testimony of prior to faith in Jesus, this is who I was, this is what I was living for, this is the fruit that came from that kind of life. And now, because of the Spirit's work in saving and redeeming me through the blood of Christ on that cross, I'm a different person. Man, I see differently, I worship differently, I think differently, I live differently. That's the Spirit's work of regenerating. The Spirit does that for us, in us. Fourthly, the Spirit indwells. See this in 1 Corinthians 6.19. It's the idea that Paul's communicating about how the Spirit now comes and makes his, his residence within us. Think about that. All throughout your Old Testament, if you wanted to behold the glory of God, you know where you had to go? Jerusalem. Because the Shekinah glory, the dwelling of God, dwelt within the Holy of Holies. That was Israel's postcard. Other nations were like, hey, we got great mountains. Come see us. Hey, we got great rivers and beaches. Come see us. Jerusalem's like, hey, we got God. Come see us, you know, and, and you would go. And that's where the glory of God dwelt. But now through Christ, that veil has been torn. God no longer dwells in, in brick and mortar, but now has come and made his dwelling in the life of a believer. Like 
This is where he dwells in us. Today, we say, you want us to behold the glory of God. Look what he's doing in the life of his church through men and women who've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Look how the Spirit's transforming their lives. The glory of God on display. Fifthly, the Holy Spirit adopts. This is the legal transaction that takes place. We who are once orphans, who are alienated from God because of our sin, Romans chapter eight, verses 15 through 17, talks about the idea of how the spirit now comes and legally adopts us into the family of God. It is this beautiful picture that as adopted children, we now have intimate access once again with God. Access into the presence of God through his spirit. I'll never forget Billy Graham uh, sharing this story about a very sincere, very zealous Catholic woman who approached him and said, listen, what's this business about praying directly to God? You can't do that. You don't have access to God that way. You've got to pray through a saint. You've got to pray through Mary in order to have access. And the reasoning, the logic that she used was take the president of the United States. You don't just go approach the president however you want. You have to go through one of his officials, one of his dignitaries or emissaries. You've got to go through them in order to get to the president. You don't just get a schedule. And I remember Billy just looked at her and said, you are absolutely right. Unless you're the son or the daughter of the president. In which case then you can go into his room at any time and crawl up in his lap. This is the privileged place of the son or daughter of God that has been legally adopted by the spirit so that you can now cry out directly to him, Abba, Father. Fifth or sixthly, the Holy Spirit seals and secures. We see this in Ephesians chapter one, verse 13 and 14. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus talks about how the spirit has been given as a seal, as a guarantee of your salvation. And this is important. In Roman culture, talked about this before, the king would have a signet ring of his insignia and he would take a certified letter, a decree that would be issued to all the people and they would seal that letter in hot wax and he would take his signet ring and put it in that hot wax to ensure his stamp, his sign, his seal that couldn't be opened by anyone else and it guaranteed that its delivery would make it to its destination. It's like a a down payment on a home that says we're in this thing and Unless we renege, you can have the whole thing back. This is God putting a seal on the believer with the Holy Spirit as a down payment of the ultimate consummation of your salvation that is coming one day that cannot be reneged upon. If God can forsake your salvation, then it dissolves the entire Trinity. The Holy Spirit's job is to carry it all the way through. He seals and he secures the believer. This is the role of the believer, more could be said there, but that's a general idea of what the Spirit does. Now, it doesn't end there, though. The Spirit's job is not just to simply help you get your hell insurance so you can keep living like you want. The Spirit's job now is to take this new believer in Christ and utterly transform them like the chrysalis from a caterpillar to a butterfly. It's going to bring you through a transformation that will make you more and more like Jesus until the day Jesus returns where he takes you home. And you need to know this, John 16, four, Jesus tells us the ultimate job of the Holy Spirit. If you wanna know what the role of the Holy Spirit is, it is to bring glory to Jesus in all things. By the way, this is one of the greatest tests, the greatest test to know is a church spirit led? 
If they are spirit-led, then Jesus will be worshiped more than anything else. If a church claims they love Jesus, but the gifts of the spirit are really what's on display and they land upon themselves, that is not a spirit-led church. If a church has an intellectual understanding of the Holy Spirit, can parse out the doctrine of pneumatology all day long on the spirit, but yet yields nowhere to the spirit's leading, they're not spirit-led. If the church at the end of the day worships a personality or a podcast on the stage, that church isn't spirit-led. At the end of the day, all those things become a means to a greater end of making much of the name of Jesus. That's where you see the spirit leading the church, that all would glorify and worship Jesus. One of the ways the spirit does this, Paul says in Romans 8, 29, is by conforming the life of a Christian to the image of Jesus so that by the end of our lives, we will look more like him than when our salvation began. You know, it was asked of Michelangelo when he was making the uh, statue of David, man, how is it, Michelangelo, you can take that hunk of granite and turn it into David? Michelangelo replied, he said, you need to know that hunk of granite already is David. I'm just taking away what ought not be. And in a sense, that is exactly what the Holy Spirit's doing with us. You are already in Christ, as much of a mess as you are, and I am. But by God's grace, through the Spirit, over time, his job is to chisel away the flesh on us so that by the end of this life, we look more like Jesus, the image of his Son, than anything else. Now, this is a work, though, that we can't do. We can't accomplish on our own. Jesus promised again in John 14, 16, that he would have to send a helper in order to do this work. The helper is the Holy Spirit. And so what does the Spirit do in conforming us to the image of Christ? I'm gonna give you six more things real quick. The last two will focus on our value, where it comes from. But six things right here that the Holy Spirit does along the way that helps us to look more like Jesus as a church. Number one, he teaches us. You could also say he illumines truth to us, but he teaches us. John 14, 26, Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would come and lead his people in all truth. He will teach us which is good news for us because that means that no Christian ultimately has to be at the mercy of a human teacher. So I pray that God uses my preparation this morning and this sermon to minister to you and the Holy Spirit uses to make you more like Jesus. But at the end of the day, if I die today, you're not host. If for some reason all technology got shut down and all your podcasts were gone and you couldn't listen to Piper and Keller and Chandler or whoever else anymore, you're not hosed. If we had to go back to the 80s and just do tape ministries again, you're going to be okay. You know why? Because you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you and his job is to teach you the truth that he has given us from God through his word. And he can do that. He's going to open our eyes to the truth so that, not just so we'll get bigger heads, but so that we'll actually yield our entire life to the Spirit, to those truths. And when we don't, when we get out of step, when we know what the Spirit's truth is from the Scripture and we choose not to obey it, then the Spirit does a second thing here, and He disciplines us. He chastens us. And this is a good thing. This is a loving thing. Hebrews 12 says that... that uh, that uh, the, the father disciplines those whom he loves. Any good parent will discipline their kid when they get out of step. That's a loving thing. And the way that God disciplines us is through the Holy Spirit. One of the ways 
We see in Ephesians chapter four, verse 30 is the idea of the grieving of the spirit because the spirit is a person living within us. When we choose to rebel against God, it grieves the spirit when we walk away from him. And that grieving of the spirit, that is a good thing. It becomes a gift for us from the Holy Spirit by helping our own heart conscience cry out against us, to cry out against our sin, that, that we will feel the conviction and the grief of the Holy Spirit that would lead us to repentance. And that's why it's important that when we feel and sense those promptings of conviction, we yield to them in repentance. But what happens is when you see somebody who habitually goes through their life and there is no conscience towards sin whatsoever. There is no struggle with sin. Let's be honest. We're all, every Christian's going to struggle every day as long as we're in this flesh, right? Myself, all of us are. But when you see somebody who I'm talking doesn't just struggle, they go their entire life and they might say they love Jesus, but there is no conscience towards their sin, idolatry, counter-rebellion to whatever the scriptures say is true. It leaves room to wonder if there's truly a regenerate heart within there. If the Holy Spirit really is dwelling, because the Holy Spirit's job is to convict and to chasten and to discipline. And so we must listen and respond. The mark of a son or daughter of God is receiving the discipline from God when we get out of step and we respond to it in repentance. The Spirit gives us this. Thirdly, the Spirit intercedes. Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27 speaks to this idea that when we are going through seasons of chastening and discipline, when we're going through brokenness, just from living in a fallen world where we're walking through suffering and pain and trial, the one thing God wants us to do is cry out to him in prayer out of dependence for his ability to help us. But here's the deal. We don't even know how to pray. We struggle. The easiest thing, you don't even have to, you don't even have to have a mouth to pray. You don't have to have arms and legs to pray. You just got to be able to think. And most of us have a hard time with that one. But nonetheless, that's a hard thing for a lot of us to do is to pray. And by God's grace, he gives us the spirit to help us in our weakness when he intercedes on our behalf with groanings too deep for words. That is good news to know that God has not left us at the mercy of our own prayer life. Think about that. What if God were obligated to answer every single prayer you have ever prayed in your life? How many of y'all would already have hosed your entire life right now? Oh, yeah. Sixth grade. Lord, give me this girl, please. Oh, please. No, I'm going to actually have her and her family move out of state. So you can't have that right there. No, right? Like, I'm so grateful to God. Like old Garth Brooks song, unanswered prayers. Thank you. That the Holy Spirit has been given to us to help redirect our misguided prayer life to translate what should be to make its way to the throne so that God hears and intercedes. The Spirit is given in our weakness to help us. Fourthly, the Spirit gifts. He gives gifts to believers for the common good of the church and the glory of God as our help in this life, he gifts the work of the Spirit to supernaturally enable every believer with at least one spiritual gift that is meant to be used, divinely used and empowered for the good of others and the glory of God. For some of you, there are natural abilities that you've had prior to your faith in Jesus that the Holy Spirit 
is enabled to miraculously empower as now a gift to be used in serving the needs of others. Some of those are common and ordinary things that the Lord has miraculously empowered, such as gifts of teaching, gifts of serving, gifts of, of giving, generosity, gifts of administrating, and the gift of wisdom, of knowledge applied that is well above even your own years that the Holy Spirit's given you, the gifts of mercy. My wife has a strong gift of mercy, just strong gift. Like she runs to the least of the least and the broken of the broken. And this is something she's always had, even before her conversion, that was just part of a, a temperament she had and, and how God has uniquely wired her. But I've seen it, the Lord empower this as a gift to minister for such a time as this to someone who's broken. If you are a woman in here who is wrestling with loneliness, you're off in a corner and you're hurting, God help you if my wife walks by because the Spirit's about to be all over you in that moment <laughs> to minister to you in ways that he just hasn't wired me. He's wired her. And he's given these gifts. Others, though, have been given distinctly extraordinary gifts. We see this in the Scripture where the Lord has granted gifts of healing, to heal someone who is sick, infirmity. I, I've shared with you before, man, I, I haven't seen a ton of this in my life, but I have experienced it, of what it was like to pray over a young child who had a terminal brain cancer and to pray and have our elders come lay hands on this child and pray and beg and plead and see this child healed fully the next time they went in for the, the doctor's visit for the MRI. I mean, seen extraordinary things, and God is gifted in such a way to do that. There are folks that have been given prophetic words where the Lord has, the Holy Spirit has imparted words that were given at an appropriate placed time for the edification of the church. Again, you see this in several places all throughout the scriptures and even throughout church history in the church today. Now, the Spirit never speaks in contradiction to his word. Remember, it is the Spirit who has breathed out this word. You remember last week in, in Brady's message, all scripture is God breathed. You know what the word for breathed is in Greek? It's the same word for spirit. The spirit has given these words. And so the spirit therefore would never give a word that would contradict this because God is not a liar. But nonetheless, the spirit enables. We've seen other forms of miracles, the gift of tongues where supernatural uh, ability to interpret language and to speak in a foreign language that would proclaim the mighty deeds of God for edification is there. I mean, the beautiful gifts of the church that serve, ultimately these gifts serve as a pointer to Jesus and serve as a foretaste of his coming kingdom. All of which, which we believe and we cherish here at Northway, though we want to see them practiced properly according to scriptures with great order and the glorification of Christ in all things. Now, there is so much. We could spend 10 more sermons on the gifts, and I know that's what a lot of y'all are hoping and praying that I do today. Can I just tell you, Romans is coming. Hang in there. We'll have plenty of time. For the sake of time, though, I want to drill down on these last two, which will help us understand what it means to be a church led by the Spirit. These last two are the, the work of the Spirit to fill and the work of the Spirit to lead. The filling of the Holy Spirit, the leading of the Holy Spirit. I want to look at filling. You should have Ephesians 5 right there open. Look at Ephesians 5 real quick. One key verse here, chapter 5, verse 18. The Apostle Paul says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that would be debauchery, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
be filled by the Spirit. Now, Paul is speaking here to the church at Ephesus to the role that control and power plays in a believer's life, in a church's life. And by the way, all these scriptures we're about to read were not written to individuals. Bear in mind, they were written to the church. And this is a, a group effort here that we're going to see. But Paul is speaking on the role of control and power. At the end of the day, we are to be a church that is under the control and the power of the Holy Spirit and not lesser things. Paul could have used many examples. He could have talked about the power that addiction to social media plays. You know, and gosh, get off your phone. It's influencing you. It has too much control over your life. He could have talked about sexual lusts and passions that so drive so many of us in our culture. He could have talked about political pressure being that which controls and influences you the most. He could have done a number of examples had they been around in his day or, in, or could have gone for the ones that were in his day, but probably one of the most prominent was that of wine, of alcohol. And he uses wine as an example here. And you need to know that nowhere in the Bible does God condemn the enjoyment of wine or alcohol. However, the scriptures do prohibit the control of its power as the governing influence of your life through drunkenness. See, when you are filled with wine, when you go slam five, six pints of some hard cider or whatever your beverage of choice is, what is going to happen at that party? Are you going to be able to walk out those doors under your own control? No, you're going to walk out being controlled by a higher substance, a higher power that is now overrided your sober-mindedness, your control, your yielding, to the point now where that alcohol will now own you. Where it says to go, you will go. Where it, says, where it says to walk, you will walk. Where it says to drift lanes, you will drift lanes. I uh, had a pastor friend of mine that was talking about one time he went, to, uh, he went to Mexico for his honeymoon. He's there with his wife. And the guide that was with him says, listen, y'all can drink any beverage you want at this resort. I'm just going to tell you, stay away from the tequila. He's like, why? Why do we got to stay away from the tequila? Well, because it is so strong that it's going to make you see double and feel single. Y'all know what he's talking about right there? It will affect your morality and your judgment. It will control you. To be filled by the Holy Spirit means he owns you. It means he controls us. It means he empowers every aspect of our life for his purposes. The irony here, though, is that there is a command to obey a passive verb. Now, that seems weird, doesn't it? One theologian put, there's a difference between me commanding you to drive your car home today and commanding you be driven by your car home. Those are two different things. And in this instance, we are told to be filled by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say fill yourself with the Holy Spirit, but be filled by the Holy Spirit. Has everything to do, to understand how you obey a passive command, has everything to do with the understanding of the actual word for filling. What does filling mean according to the scriptures? In Greek, the word for uh, spirit is the word pneuma. And pneuma can be translated as breath. It can also be translated as wind. And many scholars have used the imagery of wind here as the idea of filling. And they liken it maybe to that of a sailboat. A sailboat does not produce its own power, but rather harnesses the power of another. It yields itself to the power that is available to it. It does not create its own power. 
Um, and if, and even if the wind though is blowing really strong on a sailboat, unless you adjust your sails to the wind, your boat will not move. And likewise here, in this context, the filling of the Holy Spirit in a Christian's life is about yielding to the Spirit's control and power and not your own or to something lesser. So many of us are determined to live our lives according to the power of our own flesh. And it is the reason we are not moving forward in life in areas of victory where God desires we move forward and experience victory is because we are still driven by our own flesh. We are empowered by our own flesh, not the spirit. And so this becomes important because what this passage is saying is not that you need more of the spirit, but the spirit needs more of you. You are already given all the spirit you need at your conversion, in your baptism, in your regeneration, at your indwelling. All the spirit. The question is, does the spirit have you? Are you yielding to the spirit's lead? Or are you simply denying the spirit for your own self-sufficiency? And so, how do you do that, though? How do you practically yield to the spirit's lead? Can I give you a couple things? Number one, you got to desire it. And I mean, you have to desire that God has control of your life, not you. Can I, can I just be frank with you? You don't need the Holy Spirit to live a nominal life. You don't. But you do need the Holy Spirit if you're going to love like God's called you to love. If you're going to walk in holiness like God's called you to walk in. To proclaim the gospel and go places where he's called us to go. You're going to need the Spirit. And you've got to desire that. You've got to desire that he be the leader. Most of us are just too dang self-willed and do not want to give up control of our lives. We have to begin by submitting to the Spirit. Secondly, though, has got to follow with confession and repentance. Once we stand there and go, here I am, Lord, send me. Holy Spirit, have your way within me. According to your word, according to what you want for this context, on this day where I'm at with these people, lead me, I'm following. When that yieldedness is there, there's got to also be an undergirding confession and repentance from all the other areas of lesser powers that I've allowed control my life. From lesser things that I've allowed to steer me and influence me. And understand, you got to agree with God concerning the nature of sin and the nature of his holiness. God is quick to forgive where we have drifted, but we will not experience his control and his power when we are spending our time disagreeing with him over who he is and disagreeing with him about how he's called us to live. When we have yielded and we've confessed it and we're repentant and we're open, the third next thing becomes an active part on our behalf of yielding to the Spirit's lead. There is a role in us. The Spirit is going to lead, no doubt, but we've got to go. I mean, it's the whole adage of you, God's not called you to lean on a shovel and pray for a hole. There's some yieldedness you've got to do in this as well, and it's leaning into the Spirit. How do you do that? Here's the last point. It's by being led by the Spirit. Look at Galatians 5. This is the sixth thing that I wanted to speak to you. Galatians 5, a church that is led by the Spirit. Paul is arguing in this passage, uh, Galatians 5, starting in verse 16 to the end of the chapter. Paul is arguing in this section, every one of us are being led by someone or something at all times, whether we know it or not. And that someone or something is leading us somewhere. 
And the way that you'll be able to tell who is leading you is by the kind of fruit that's coming for your life. If your life is marked by self-lust, lack of self-control, wanting to pursue and gratify the desires of your own flesh, wanting to glorify your own name, wanting just to fulfill the cravings of your body. If your life is consumed by immoral choices that hurt and wound other people, it's indicative of who's leading you. But if your life is being led in such a way that fruit is coming from you, the type of healthy fruit on a healthy tree that is indicating that it's the spirit of God that is leading you. That's how we'll be able to tell. That's what Paul's going to argue in this passage. Now, in verses 16 through 18, Paul's going to talk about the provision of the spirit's lead. Listen to this. This is the gift the Holy Spirit is. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, then you're not under the law. Paul is saying here, if left to ourselves, if left to our own power, our own sufficiency, our own determinative will and direction, then we will live lives that will run in a path that is counter to where God wants to lead us for human flourishing and for his glory. And so as a gift to help counter that, God has given us the spirit who is the one that is to be our leader and our guide who will help us go in the direction that God has designed us to go in. But what hinders this work of the spirit is when we choose not to yield to the spirit, but instead yield to the leader of our own flesh, the broken nature within us and depend on it. And so in verses 19 through 21, Paul then walks through the kind of fruit that comes with that life. 19 through 21 is showing us our need for the spirit because this is our life apart from the spirit. Here's the works of the flesh that are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, Paul is not saying that if a Christian, a true believing Christian, were to stumble into some of those things this week, that means you've lost your salvation. That's not what he's saying. That we're all going to struggle. We're all going to battle against our flesh. We're all, at times, going to compromise. But the Holy Spirit is there to convict, to intercede, that we might repent and turn around. But we're talking about somebody here. Paul's talking about somebody whose entire life is characteristic by the type of fruit that perpetually comes from their life that indicates they're not being led by the flesh, they're being led by their, they're not being led by the spirit, they're being led by their flesh. But in this, in verse 22 to 25, there's a different kind of fruit that can come when we are led by the spirit and not by our flesh. Instead of all those other things, he says in verse 22, but the fruit of the spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus, they have crucified their flesh with its passions and desires. So if we live by the Spirit, oh, then let us keep in step with the Spirit. 
Paul is saying this kind of godly fruit in the life of a believer or in the life of the church comes by keeping in step with the Spirit or in verse 16, walking by the Spirit or there at the end, being led by the Spirit. And all of those, the idea of being led by the Spirit, no doubt has the imagery in mind, as Paul would have had it, of a Roman military squadron marching in order. And rather so that they will stay in sync and in cue and arrive at their given destination it's important that they not take their cues for marching from the crowd around them telling them how to walk, from taking their cues from other soldiers around them and comparing their steps to one another, but rather fixing their eyes on the squadron leader who is leading them in step. You could also liken that to a a marching band in high school or college where your eyes are fixed on the drum majors, not on those around you. Likewise, we are to be a people who are continually yielding ourselves to the Spirit's power and direction for God's purposes in our life. This is who we want to be at Northway Church. We don't want to be led by the flesh. We want to be led by the Spirit. We want to be sensitive to the Spirit. We want to be open to where the Spirit might lead us as a church and be obedient in accordance with the truth of His Word. How do you do that? Can I just give you some final things? Because we're way over. Let me give you some final things. How can you be led by the Spirit? I think a starting place is we got to grow in our knowledge and understanding of the Holy Spirit. Can we just call a spade a spade and say a lot of our church is biblically illiterate in terms of the Spirit? We get our ideas from other churches. We get our ideas from experiences. We don't get it from the Word of God. We need to grow in an understanding of who He is by what He said. In the same way in my marriage, I want to grow in my relationship with my wife by knowing her by truly knowing her, by studying her. And that's not something I just did at the altar. It's something I do for the rest of my life. And there's fruit that comes from that kind of marriage when that's cultivated. We, gotta, we need to seek to better understand and know the Holy Spirit from his word. Secondly, we gotta slow the heck down, Dallas. We are too busy with such hurried lives and self-ruled pursuits that some of us honestly could not hear the Spirit's voice if you're right in front of you yelling at you. Just too busy. We are so in pursuit of our own self-sufficiency that we don't stop and seek to listen. Like Elijah of old, who sought to hear the word of the Lord, and he listened in the earthquake, and it wasn't there. He listened in the wind, and it wasn't there. He listened in the fire, and it wasn't there. And then he heard it in the still, small voice of God. Like We, we need to be a people who listen for the Spirit's voice and the sufficiency that is in him. I shared with you before, it's a tragic example of the Korean pastor who came to the United States for the very first time and took a tour of the United States of different churches in different states. And at the end of the tour, that team asked him, man, what do you think of the church here in America? You've always wanted to come over here. You've toured it now. What do you think? And he goes, I am utterly amazed at how much the American church can accomplish apart from the Holy Spirit. It was an indictment on the self-sufficiency and pragmatism of our day of a people who are so hurried and so busy that we're not being led by the Spirit. We're being led by our flesh. We need to stop and we need to listen. And part of that thirdly involves living a pruned life to make no provision for the flesh. Some of this may mean eliminating some things out of our lives that are crowding out the voice of the Spirit. We're so addicted to our social media We are binge-watching shows in vacant spaces that could be filled with the voice of the Spirit. And this is on me. This is on me. 
had a big blowout with my wife last two weeks ago. Finally got the TV out of the room because <laughs> we're just, we're, we're not even connecting. So we're just exhausted at the end of the day and we're binging out like everybody in here. I know we all do it to some degree for us. And I'm not saying that's the, the, the rule for everybody. For us, that was a sensitivity of the spirit to go, man, we got to free up some space. We got to drop some of the sandbags that are holding this balloon down for where the spirit wants to take us in our relationships. So we need to discern what does that look like? And it's not just taking away stuff. It's also replacing that stuff that, that kindles our affections towards God and towards the voice of his spirit. And so there's a few ways to do that. Some of it may go back to last week's message where we're just in the word a little bit more, y'all. We're seeking to listen to the voice of God through the word that's already been breathed out by the spirit for us to seek his counsel as we read the scriptures, asking the spirit to illumine those truths, asking which areas of my life are not yielded to what I just read. And we might cultivate that kind of dependence. The truth is the spirit can speak apart from his word. He can, he does so in many ways, but he never speaks in contradiction to his word. And so we might lean into that. I will tell you that prayer has got to be the foundational bedrock of not just our individual lives, but of our church. We almost made prayer this value. And I know some of you are like, where's prayer? We feel there's a lot of undergirding sub-values that come under the definition of being led by the Spirit. If you're led by the Spirit, it means you're praying. And we want to be a church that's, that's staunchly committed to prayer because I've told you before, the absence of prayer in a church indicates the presence of pride. You don't pray, it's because you feel you can live this life apart from the Spirit. And we are a church that confesses we cannot. So we must get on our face. And that's rather regular rhythms throughout the day, but it's also, I mean, we have corporate opportunities, worship and prayer. The first Monday of every month, we come together and we pray. That's also opportunities um, every Monday morning from 6 to 7 a.m. over at Houndstooth Coffee on Walnut Hill and 75. There's a whole group that gets together and pray for the nations asking God to move. We have folks that come in here 45 minutes before the service starts and walks around this room and prays for you. You can show up early and just come pray. Like we need to be a church that's staunchly committed to prayer. And I could walk through many other what are called spiritual disciplines. This is not legalism. To tell you you need to read your scriptures and you need to pray, that's not legalism. Legalism is when you have to do something in order to earn something you don't have. You've already been given everything in Christ. You've already been given the Holy Spirit. Spiritual disciplines are for a bunch of people who know that we like sheep love to wander. And I wanna teach my heart where the gold is. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna invoke disciplines that'll help retrain the pathways of my affections towards where they belong. I would encourage you, pick up Donald Whitney's book, Spiritual Disciplines. It'll do you wonders and incorporate some of that. But let me just, let me say this. At the end of the day, this is how you know you have the Holy Spirit leading our church, is that we will see and trust and treasure Jesus more than anything else. And we will exhibit a kind of fruit in and through this people that is in keeping with the Spirit, not the flesh. God wants the Holy Spirit not just to be a theological truth we affirm at Northway, but an experiential reality that we encounter every day of our lives. By God's grace, we at Northway Church will seek to be led by the same spirit that led Jesus and his mission that will help us to lead in ours. So here's what I'd love to do, something a little bit different. In the last bit of time that we have, I invite the band to come back up on stage. You've got a card somewhere in front of you. and want to see that says spirit led. We created it for this service. 
I want to give you just some time right here that you might listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's from some of the scriptures we read in here that Holy Spirit provoked your heart a little bit, that prompted something in you. Maybe it's some of the takeaways we've talked about that you go, you know what, man, I think I need to yield there. And just spend some time journaling down a few takeaways that you sense the Spirit leading you of what, what it looks like to yield more fully to the Holy Spirit in the coming days and in the coming years. Spend some time journaling that down. I mean, I spent some good time. I mean, again, less for me, a lot of less media and technology and more time in the Word, more time in prayer would be a great start. Less hurry, more Sabbath, more journaling, uh, evidences of God's grace, obeying promptings that the Holy Spirit gives me at the first impulse rather than hesitating. You know what happens when the Holy Spirit prompts you and you deny those promptings? You grieve the Holy Spirit. You know what happens when you grieve the Holy Spirit over and over and over again? It's what the Paul, says, Paul says to Thessalonians, you quench the Holy Spirit. Quenching again like Gatorade when you, something is so satisfied you don't need it anymore. May we never be a church that does not need the Holy Spirit. And so whatever it is, write that down. Spend some time journaling on that. And then uh, Brett will come back up here after we sing and, and uh, we'll do communion together and then we'll be dismissed. Let's do that now.